John chapter 15, I'm going to read from verse 4 through verse 8. Abide in me, and I in you, as the branch cannot bear fruit of itself unless it abides in the vine, so neither can you unless you abide in me. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me, and I in him, he bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. If anyone does not abide in me, he is thrown away as a branch and dries up, and they gather them and cast them into the fire, and they are burned. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. By this is my Father glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. Let us pray. Our Heavenly Father, we, I ask that you, you would help me. You would give me energy and strength to proclaim your word this, this evening. I pray that you would give us all attentiveness of, of heart and mind to, to study these things, to see if these things are so. But, Father, to take in this great word of, of our, our Lord, if you abide in me and my words abide in you. Father, there is a desire for intimacy of which uh, apparently few... No, and yet we desire that you would draw us to that state, that we would be abiding in Christ daily, momentarily, at all times, that we would adore you and we would give you all praise and glory for this life. We ask that you would teach us. In Christ's name we pray, amen. In her women's Bible study book on prayer entitled Before the Throne of God, Carol Ravelo uh, brings up a problem that she has encountered in, in her ministry among women in teaching them to pray, which apparently has been a problem for Christians for many times, because after I quote from Carol Ravelo, I'll quote from A.W. Pink. But Revelo says this, that many people assume prayer is to be, quote, spontaneous, informal, and free from constraints. And perhaps you know people like that, that, that prayer should not be scripted, it should not be uh, anything that we really think about beforehand, it should be free and, and, and spontaneous, informal. But A.W. Pink, in his book on the gleanings from Paul, says that the truth is more that this kind of prayer is, is often, quote, incoherent and aimless, lacking in point and unity, end quote. See, they're, they're both bringing up the same issue, that we don't really know how to pray, and yet we think that we know how to pray, and we think that we do a pretty good job at praying. But tonight I'm going to suggest what, um, and I think I see that Revelo uses the word, it's something that I've thought of before, but I like her phrase. Most people would do better if they would practice open book prayer. Now if you were in school, and I, I haven't done this in my classes because it's kind of hard to do it in math, but some courses the teacher will give an option of having an open book test or a closed book test. And most of us would do better with an open book test 
because we can have the book there and we know generally where things are and perhaps we do it because we don't have to study as much or memorize as many things. We can flip through the book and find them. But when it comes to prayer, I believe that it is key that we think in terms of open book prayer. And if we look at the key to that, I think we see that in John 15, verse 7. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. There, there are, is a prerequisite. There, there is something that Christ is looking at in us that we must abide in him, but his words must abide in us as well. His sayings, the things that he taught. And I think by extension, the entire scripture that is given for our instruction and our edification. That these things must abide in us if we are to pray as he would have us. And then that freedom we have to ask of him and it shall be done. Someone has said that right thoughts result in right actions. Well, I don't know that that is an exact cause effect, but right thoughts certainly steer us toward right actions. And as those who are desiring to please God, to become righteous ones in Christ, isn't it our priority to know what right thoughts we ought to have? Now, in the scriptures, we see this, I think, negatively. First of all, in 1 Samuel chapter 15, we see Samuel having an instruction from the Lord that he would go and strike Amalek. And here's the direct instruction from the Lord to uh, Samuel, to Saul, to carry this out. Now go and strike Amalek and utterly destroy all that he has and do not spare him but put to death both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And so Saul summoned the people and they went and they defeated the Amalekites. And it says, but Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep, the oxen, the fatlings, the lambs, and all that was good and were not willing to destroy them utterly, but everything despised and worthless that they utterly destroyed. And then you know the story that Samuel comes along and meets him and says, blessed are you of the Lord, I have carried out the command of the Lord, Saul says to Samuel when he meets him. And Samuel says, what then is this bleating in my ear? The sheep that I hear that I shouldn't be hearing. And Saul tries to defend himself. And, and, and Samuel asks him, when did you not obey the Lord but rushed upon the spoil and what did what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul says, I did obey the Lord and went on this mission. And Samuel says, no, no, you have made an excuse. You have not understood rightly what God said. You have not obeyed the instruction. You have made an assumption about God that he would be pleased because Saul keeps arguing. Well, the, the, the people wanted to give a sacrifice to the Lord. They wanted to take the choicest things devoted to destruction and sacrifice and Samuel says, no, God's having none of that. 
And we know that that is the, the root of idolatry that Tozer, uh, that we have quoted quite often, the essence of idolatry is entertaining thoughts about God that are unworthy of him. See, Samuel's thoughts were about God were not worthy of him because they, they were wrong. They, he assumed that God would like something that he had devised. And yet God had said, no, you shall utterly destroy all of these things. Positively, the scriptures tell us, Paul, in Colossians 3, set your mind on the things above, not on the things that are on the earth. It's a very succinct way of saying the things that you have set your minds on, not of the things of the earth, but the things above, the things of God. Or in Romans 15, we see a prayer from Paul for the Roman Christians. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant you to be of the same mind with one another. Again, the, the setting the mind, the, the mind is so critical to this idea of being able to pray. He says, of the same mind with one another according to Christ. And, and why are we encouraged to pray this way? Why are we encouraged to pray in this kind of way that, that Paul illustrates for us? Well, Arthur Pink, again, in his book on the gleanings of Paul, says, because he, God, is the author of these graces, because he requires the exercise of the same in us, and because we are constantly to seek the quickening and strengthening of these graces in us. See, he says, you know, there's a source, and it is your duty and you need it. You, you need to be growing in these things. So he, he, he's telling us, you need to open the book. You, you need to see what God is like. Notice that he calls him the God who gives perseverance and encouragement. See, it's directed specifically to, to an author, to a source, and shows us why we need these things. John Blanchard, in his commentary on James, says, Good prayer, quote, substitutes man's weaknesses with God's strength, man's ignorance with God's wisdom, man's emptiness with God's fullness, man's poverty with God's wealth, man's impotence with God's omnipotence. See, our prayers need a substitution. Of, of our little puny thoughts, of our wrong thoughts to right thoughts, those thoughts that are from God. They, they need, we need to open the book, and we, we need to open the pages, and we need to ask of God to show us these things, that, that we will have that good substitution of his strength, his omnipotence, his power, his wisdom. I will admit that I have seen a couple of films that were starring Mel Gibson. And you, you can't watch one without being turned off by the amount of blood, and I have not seen the bloodiest of them. But one that was intriguing to me that I have watched is The Patriot, in which Mel Gibson's he's portraying historical fiction his character is not named this, but he is portraying the man, the South Carolina native, the man who was known as the Swamp Fox of the Revolutionary War time, Francis Marion. And in the film, the Gibson's character is instructing his sons not only for hunting game, of which they needed to eat, but redcoats. And in there, he says to his sons, Aim small, miss small. 
And where that came from to him was illustrated in the movie is that from a distance he witnessed one of the battles. He was trying to stay out of the engagement and yet the Redcoats were working their way up the coast of South Carolina, approaching Charleston, near where he lived. And he witnessed one of these battles against the rebels, those the revolutionaries trying to fight the Redcoats. And if you see a battle, you think, this is insane. But they stood in a block and they fired across a field and just fired and volley after volley toward one another in a block. And I don't know how anybody survived that. Perhaps what you do is dive under a guy as he's falling and then wait until the battle's over and then you can escape. It's insane and, there, and Gibson's character is in a fury. And what he did with his fellow swamp compatriots, they hid behind trees and stone walls and they made every shot count. They took aim. They were careful not to just fire into a mass of people, which takes no real aim, but to make every lead shot count. Every shot had a purpose and a goal in mind. And that, I think, illustrates how we ought to pray, because every prayer ought to have an aim. It, it, it can't be, as Revelo calls it, spontaneous, informal, and without constraint. It, it, there are constraints on our prayers, and they ought to be well-aimed and with a purpose. An example in the scriptures that we find uh, of Jesus uh, apparently trying to draw this out of one blind Bartimaeus. Remember his story? He's on the side of the road as Jesus is coming from Jericho, and, and the people around him are a little disgusted with him because he keeps shouting, Son of David, have mercy on me. And finally, the crowd says, you know, Jesus, he's calling you. And Jesus says to him, what do you want me to do for you? And Andrew Murray, in his book, with Christ in the School of Prayer says, there is a sense in which Jesus, he does know what the man's heart is like, but he wants him to know what specifically is your desire. And so he asked them, what do you want me to do for you? And I can just picture Jesus with some of my own prayers saying, what is it that you want me to do for you? You, you're aimless. You, you're kind of scattershot. You're, you're doing the buckshot. But my scriptures and my teaching on prayer causes us to, to be purposeful. Murray says this, Our prayers must not be a vague appeal to his mercy, an indefinite cry for blessing, but the distinct expression of definite need. He goes on to say, it leads us to judge whether our desires are according to God's word and whether we really believe that we shall receive the things we ask. See, see there's, there's a purpose there, a, a focus there. Now, there are, of course, there are those who, who say, again, that we see evidence in Scripture of, of those who just, you know, just lift up prayer spontaneously. They point to... to Nehemiah, for example, it's been called in some of the commentaries, uh, Nehemiah's arrow prayer. Uh, 
You recognize it from Nehemiah chapter 2. Remember when he was the cupbearer to the king and he has already been notified that his people, his fellow countrymen are in Jerusalem, their city is not rebuilt. The gates are burned and there are people in great, great need and it's on his heart. And yet when he's delivering the cup, the king sees his sad face. And Nehemiah says, you know, I've never been sad in his presence before. He says, so the king said to me, why is your face sad, though you are not sick? There is nothing but sadness of heart. Nehemiah says, then I was very much afraid. And I said to the king, let the king live forever. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs, lies in desolate, lies desolate and its gates have been consumed by fire? Then the king said to me, what would you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. See, his arrow prayer, they say. <laughs> but I think it's because they haven't read chapter 1. In verse 4, where he says, Now it came about when I heard these words, getting the message from Jerusalem, I sat down and wept and mourned for days, and I was fasting and praying before the God of heaven, and I was beseeching the Lord of heaven, the great and awesome God. See, he's already spent many days on his knees and in fasting and prayer for these people so that when the king says to him, the king says, what would you request? And Nehemiah was able to say, so it pleased the king to send me and I gave him a definite time. See, it's evidence to me that He's already had a definite time, a definite answer. And I think when he says, so I prayed to the God of heaven, it was a, whoo, thank you that he brought it up. Thank you that you've given me the opening that I prayed for. Why? Because he's over in verse chapter 1. We hear these words in prayer from Nehemiah. To God, he says, remember the word which thou didst command thy servant Moses. That if, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though those you have scattered were in the most remotest part of the heavens, I will gather them from there. And I will bring them to the place where I have chosen to cause my name to dwell. He had an open book. And he read it and he knew what the promise was to Moses. That God would do and he's just reminding God of it. And so his prayers have aim. It may be an arrow prayer, but it was an arrow that he had already put in the bow and he had ready to let fly. It wasn't just spontaneous. It wasn't informal. It wasn't off the cuff. It was something that Nehemiah had already in his heart and mind before God. And to me, that's the power. That's the power that we all desire, I think, in prayer. And yet I think it's the, also the aim of the scriptures and the teaching of not only Christ himself, but Paul as he teaches us to pray. If we are going to be people who think theologically, we also have to be people who pray theologically. And to me, maybe that's where the truth comes out. Do you believe what you're studying? Do you really act on what you have read and studied and can repeat? But remember what we see here in John 15. If we are to be those praying theologians, 
And I do believe that if we are going to counteract that which Tozer says is one of our, our greatest needs to keep from falling into idolatry, that we have right thoughts about God, that the anchor is here in John fifteen seven. If you abide in me, and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. God the Father can only be reached in Christ. If you abide in me, Jesus says, ask whatever you wish. The branch must be attached to the vine. It must not only be attached, it must be anchored in the vine for any growth, for any nourishment to happen. As a believer, we begin with faith, and we experience many blessings. And for a time, it's like our, our life is focused on those blessings and that joy that we sense, knowing that we are saved by grace through faith. And in time comes obedience. And we deepen our desire to obey him and to, to live for him. And we experience more and more, I think, of an intimate fashion with Christ. A, a beginning of something that is not of this world, but something that gives us a glimpse of that world in which to come. But we sense here in this passage that there is more to abiding in Christ. I think Andrew Murray begins to approach it here, and I, I wish to understand more of its depth myself, but listen to what he says. It is as our faith grows into obedience, and in obedience and love our whole being goes out and clings itself to Christ, that our inner life becomes opened up, and the capacity is formed within of receiving the life, the spirit of the glorified Jesus as a distinct and conscious union with Christ and with the Father. See, there's something more than just glibly saying, abide in Christ. Then, then something more than we touch or realize without that steady walk and that steady growth that only he can supply. And yet we also see here a vital connection between the word and prayer. It is a dialogue. I read God's word to see what the Father would reveal to me that I need to ask. I pray, speaking to the Father, what by faith I may ask according to his promises. And in God's word, I read answers to my prayers because the Holy Spirit helps me to hear them. Again, Andrew Murray says, the entrance his words find with me will be the measure of the power of my words with him. What God's words are to me is the test of what he himself is to me, and so of the uprightness of my desire after him in prayer. See, that, that's deep. That's heavy. That's the open book. Because as I open the book, it also opens my book, my life to him. And he can see the measure of the power of my prayers by the measure of the power of his word in my life. And so how would we become these praying theologians? Well, some of these next few things I got from 
looking at A.W. Pink's Gleanings from Paul, which you, if you have not read, we, we went through it a few years ago in our Wednesday night small group. I, I, my notes said it took us three years to get through the book, to study the prayers of Paul. But I would encourage, and I would encourage you to read those in the letters of Paul. We read, uh, David read a beautiful one from Thess Thessalonians even this evening. But notice in those prayers, not just uh, of Paul, but you see prayers of others, but, but his is probably the, the biggest selection that we have extant. But notice to whom the prayers are addressed. He, he addresses usually the Father, but he calls him the Father of mercies, or he calls him the Father of glory. And when you read just the address, the scripture is opening to you something of the character of God, something of the stance of our faith, that he prays to him as the Father of mercies. Addressing him that way, you know that there is a belief and, and a, a surety in his life that God is the author of mercies. And the Father of glory is that he is the one who deserves all glory. So observe not only the content, but the, the address. Notice the brevity of these. We, we don't have any two-hour prayers in here, in the scriptures. Pink says, wordy prayers are usually windy ones. <laughs> that, that, again, they're that spontaneous, informal, without constraint prayers that have no anchor in the scriptures. And yet Paul's have a great anchor in his abiding with Christ. Luther said it this way, the less thou speakest, the better thou prayest. <laughs> there is something about that dialogue where it's time for us to zip it and to go back to the scriptures looking for content, but also looking for God has already answered many of those prayers. Notice also, as Pink calls them, specific requests for definite things. Again, that aim, that aim small, miss small. Specific requests for definite things that he would do. I could give you many examples, but one from Ephesians. He says, I pray that the eyes of your heart may be enlightened so that you may know what is the hope of your calling, of his calling. What are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints? And what is the surpassing greatness of his power toward us who believe? Now, if you chuckled that it took us three years to get through the prayers of Paul, it probably took us three weeks just to get through one of those phrases. What does it mean, the hope of his calling, the rich of his glory and of his inheritance, the surpassing greatness of his power in us who believe? Awesome, awesome prayers, specific prayers for definite things. Not airy-fairy, not, not just kind of nebulous, but specific or from Colossians 1, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will, that you may walk in a manner worthy of the Lord. Oh, man, would somebody pray that for me? That I would walk each day in a manner that pleases God, that's worthy of the name Christian, and bearing fruit in every good work and increasing in the knowledge of God. Or even, again, the, the, the one that David read for us from Thessalonians, 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. He says, To this very end also we pray for you also that our God may count you worthy of your calling 
and fulfill every desire for goodness and work the, faith, the work of faith with power. Why? Again, specifically he asks, in order that the name of the Lord Jesus Christ may be glorified in you. See, specific requests for definite things. That's the prayers of Paul. That's the open book with which we ought to pray. Notice also that the things that are asked for are spiritual. And they're things that are, are gracious in nature, Pink says. Colossians 1, he says, We have not ceased to pray for you to please him in all respects. See, it's a, it's a very specific thing, but it's a very gracious, a, a, a very affectionate kind of thing, an intimate kind of thing, that you would please God in all respects. Who can do that? And yet he tells us we ought to be praying for that. Or Philippians 1, he says, And this I pray, that your love, the Philippians people love, and by extension us, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. See, a lot of people say, you know, I, I, I love people, and I, I love other Christians. But he say, see, Paul says, no, there, there is a love of which you do not know that we ought to pray for one another in knowledge and all discernment. And notice also that the prayers, as you will read, are generally for those of the household of faith. See, Paul places great emphasis on that. In Ephesians 6, he says, With all prayer and petition, pray at all times in the Spirit. And with this in view, be on the alert with all perseverance for all the saints. See, not only is your prayers for yourself, you're included when we say, for us. But he specifically reminds them, remember, you're praying for the perseverance of all the saints, those that you're in fellowship with, those Christians around the globe, those who name the name of Christ. It's on you to pray with perseverance for them and their perseverance. And so we see kind of a primer in here on what to notice and how to get started and how to open this book and begin to use it as a prayer guide, a prayer book. So our prayers then, we pray in our abiding in Christ. We pray with an open book. We pray with a definite aim. And we pray with all faith in him who delights to answer the prayers of his own children. Let us pray. Our Father, we, we ask that we'd open the book and you would teach us to pray. Father, that we might have an aim, a purpose. That we might pray specifically that you would be glorified. Father, specifically for the household of faith, our brothers and sisters in Christ, regardless of age and their condition of life or their place in this world. Father, you have given us the mandate to pray for them to lift them up that they might persevere. And Father, we do ask that you would teach us to pray. Teach us not to be off the cuff, not to be lazy in prayer, but to think theologically and pray theologically that you may be glorified and your church may be builded up. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Would you please rise for the benediction 
from one of those prayers of Paul from Romans 15. He says, Now may the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace in believing, that you may abound in hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.